0: Welcome everyone to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Today Boxes we have two teams. guests. Here we go. He just Thanks. loves to do that. Yeah. Our two guests today are Vlad Kandros and David Kinizo. We're, we're going to go with Vlad and Kinizo rather than official names here. Vlad and Kinizo. The reason we have you guys on the same episode is you both sent in the email with one another saying it'd be good to have you guys on the, on the podcast. And then we learned that you guys worked together in the past. What's, what's your story? How, how did this come about?
1: We used to sit on a train desk for a little bit together at Liquinet. It was like over a decade ago, and it was a great time to work together. And The, the industry's changed a whole lot, and IX didn't even exist then.
2: That's true. Mm-hmm. The industry is much better now then. Yeah, well, we're definitely said. much better <laughs> since we're in the mix. So do you guys have any compromising stories about each other that would definitely, uh, you know, we'll take it. Be good on
3: a say. podcast?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, we, we've certainly kept it professional through the years. I mean, live well, was really my first introduction to topics related to market structure, because back in 2008 and nine, it was kind of a new topic to be focusing on. And he did a really great job at LiquidNet working with various types of clients. And he would always come by the trading desk. He actually sat on the trading desk, as he mentioned for a short time and bounce ideas and thoughts off of us from our perspective. So that's really how we kind of formed our relationship.
1: Yeah, Dave, Dave joined uh, Liquinet to he help build up the PTF effort, the program training effort at Liquinet. Yeah, it was great. It was, I will say just to try to embarrass him a little but he was somebody who would always ask extremely thoughtful, detailed questions and kind of challenge or, you know, seek to further improve the way that we handle client orders and routed order flow. So I always respected that, you know, he always tried to further improve the, the product offering, which I quite liked. Made, made us made us better.
2: Thank you, much, Thank you for those. Well, comments. that's not a, that's not at all the kind of information I was going for. So.
0: Actually, Mr. canizzo we checked out your LinkedIn profile before you got on here, and it says on there that you've been in love with the stock market since you were 10 years old. And our question to you is: Finance what you had imagined it to be, or how has it changed, or why were you in love with it from 10 years old? Any any good story there?
3: No, there's not a great story. I love the money my whole life. I mean, who hasn't? <laughs> and. My mother will tell you the story of, you know, she worked at the Italian consulate her entire career, and they dealt with a lot of cash. You know, make all the jokes you want about Italians and cash. But when I would go to her office, even as a three-year-old, I would count, for count the money, and I would memorize the presidents and play with all the $100 bills, et cetera. Et cetera. However, you know, watching the movie Wall Street as a child certainly piqued my interest. And to be truthful, when I said I wanted to get into finance and eventually I said I want to be a trader, I had no idea what that meant. When I was in college, the idea of a trader, I didn't understand being a broker, buy side, sell side, working for a hedge fund. None of that really made any sense to me. So when I graduated college, I got a job at Smith Barney crunching numbers and I was introduced through some friends to an opportunity in trading, you know, air quotes, which ended up being a market maker on the sell side was my first job in trading. So I don't have a better story than that, but I kind of just fell into it and have been here ever since.
0: Nice, I have a question for uh, Vlad, just while we're, while we're asking you questions before we get going. We saw recently you're on Crane's 2020 rising stars in <laughs> banking and finance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I just, I hope it's not uh, like a magazine cover.
2: You've been on a number of these lists now, I'm glad I have to say. I'm actually on the list of 50 top people who were barely hanging on. Uh, you know, it's, a very, um, it's a different it's a different kind of list, but it's still it's prestigious.
1: Can I use as an excuse just to say, because I'll, I'll to try to embarrass John a little, which is to say, john, John's john been great to work with on, among other areas, the market data front. We've had an opportunity to work together on a number of areas as it relates to market data. I think we've done, I like to think our firms and our individuals have done some good work together So and helped further improve the US capital markets as a result. So I, I do, I have to I have to at least quickly thank you for your, all your hard work on that front.
2: That doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to embarrass you, Vlad. It's not going to, yeah, it's not. Just, uh, I tried. Yeah, I tried. For yeah,
3: okay. <laughs> I'm on the list of those who want to be on the yeah, list. Yeah. So one day I'll mm-hmm. get there. <laughs> JR, you're on my top 10 list.
2: <laughs> thank you, my little Irish friend.
0: I didn't if tell you, you what it's top 10 for. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, only joking, we only joking. I love you mm-hmm. like a pet mm-hmm. rock, my friend. <laughs> never played the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, the mu- the music gets edited in afterwards. Don't worry about that. So so I guess what, while we're taping this, listeners is probably are aware that we're taping this remotely and we're close to three months into working from home at this point. And like we always say, we, we joke around. We obviously recognize the seriousness of the situation. And it's not obviously just the Covid situation now, and there's a, there's a lot of trouble going on in the country. So anything that we joke around here, we just we just mean a little bit of levity. We're not downplaying the seriousness outside of each of our four, four walls. But I, I thought what we'd do is ask you guys really quickly, like individually, I'll start with Vlad, like how's your firm holding up with a Covid crisis? Was it has it been easy to work from home? Have you guys gotten used to being working from home? Just a quick view, you think, on what the new normal will be when we come back and how we come back. Same question for you, Mr. Canizzo.
1: So fortunately, nearly everybody's been home for some time and things have worked quite smoothly. Fortunately, our, you know, across a number of businesses, our market share has been quite healthy. So, so we've been able to service our clients globally across products. It's been pretty amazing to watch. I think we're using more virtual turrets and more virtual chats than ever before.
2: But from the video, people can't see the video, but it looks like you're in the office now.
1: You could hopefully also see the, the little the little ad behind me as well, which I quite like. So hopefully that.
2: Yeah, he has a poster
0: board that says, who can help me find the right liquidity? And the answer is on three, John. One, two, three. IEX
1: can. IEX can. Jeez, we're, we're happy to route client orders to I-X where where appropriate. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Can we edit that out again now, John, and go... Who can help me find the right liquidity? One, two, three, John. IEX can. IEX he, can. He'll, he'll get it after the ten. Okay, sunrise. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been pretty incredible, actually, because it makes a difficult decision less difficult in that it's not like we all raced off the trading floors and things imploded. So thankful for that. Canizo, how's it, how's it going at Ray J?
3: Going extremely well. Pretty much echo what Watt said across the board. We are a pretty conservative firm by nature. So if you had asked me earlier this year if this would be a possibility, I would have said no way in this world we'd be doing this right now. Luckily, Raymond James has a lot of offices in different states and locations similar to UBS. Handful of our traders and sales traders and other folks are spread across regional offices like myself, and a lot of the folks also are working from home. And to date, knock on wood, you know our business is up with the volatility, We've had record volumes across all of our product lines, and we've had no outages or hiccups, you know along the way, which is which is a great story to tell through this. Similar to what Vlad said, our CEO had put up at a podcast or a town hall meeting a couple of weeks ago. And you know the plan is in our regional offices in different states, there's going to be a slow bring back with about twenty percent capacity as being the target for the time being. There's no current plans for New York for us. I think the logistics are difficult, as Vlad talked about with public transportation, elevators, you know, other building occupants that you know, we're in the heart of Manhattan in the J.P. Morgan building. So it's gonna be difficult, but we're in no rush to go back either. So, I mean, I found it quite comfortable still maintaining a small commute and working out of an office. I've worked from home a couple of days during all this. And as I'm sure a lot of people will tell you, it could be a little challenging with the the distractions of the home front being around
0: you. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. No, glad to see you guys are faring well. We've sort of said it on several podcasts. We're doing well as well. I miss sitting next to JR, but I get to see his face on Zoom Thank every you. day. We do. Which
2: is, every which chance. You get. But it's not the same, is it? It's just not the same. It's being Net there never done. Yeah.
0: So I guess, I guess we got to go down the market structure angle, right, John? I guess I,
2: at some point we have to. That's, why, that's sort of why we're doing this, right? Wait, do you want to ask a question, John? Would you like me to? Should I? Should I go ahead? <laughs> no, I'll start with David. You, I think, have some very thoughtful ideas about kind of the importance of speed, how speed has become much more important as a, a means for competition and the impact of that on managing client orders. You want to just open it up by talking a little bit about that and and your thoughts about that and the ability of of markets to... Where have markets gone and what are the, what's the ability of markets to adapt to, to those changes?
3: Yeah, I think as you look at the evolution of market structure and the technology that we all leverage, years ago, there was certainly a distinct difference between different providers, brokers, market centers, venues that provide liquidity in terms of the speed they provide and the technology they use. At least from my seat, being the head of electronic trading at Raymond James, the customers that we serve, meaning the institutional investor for the most part, too much speed isn't always the right answer. You know, I always have a saying that my teammate has put out there for me, which is we can give everybody a Ferrari, but if you drive it off the road or drive it into a tree, what good is it? So there's a delicate balance between being smart about how you trade and what tools you use and just using speed for the sake of using speed from an institutional investor, investor perspective, and how they trade with us through our algorithms or other mechanisms. I would say that using you know, modern technology, such as we actually, part of the business I do with Vlad is through HPR, you know, using high, low latency technologies to route order flow is certainly the right thing to do. But from my seat, we're not competing you know, with the market makers or the Two Sigmas and Citadels of the world because that's not our business. So from that perspective, I think traditional institutional investor has a lot of access to the toolkits they need to execute their orders efficiently today. And it's also why we felt the need to comment on D-Limit because as you know, we are a big fan of D-PEG and we thought D-Limit was an interesting balance when it comes to the quote, as you do as well, I know. And, you know, that's a type of mechanism that allows a firm such as ourselves to level the playing field and execute intelligently for the type of customers we cater to and also the order intention that our orders typically have. I think that gets lost a lot when we talk about speed. I think a lot of industry folks like to blur the lines of having lightning fast speed where you can route an order around the globe in a microsecond. That only pertains to a certain segment of the market and is not applicable to everybody on the institutional side of the world in my mind.
2: Well, thank you, David. That was very well said. And now we're going to actually limit the podcast just talking to you from now on. I think you said everything that needed to be said and quite well. For people who don't know, our delimit proposal, again, sort of an per comment, is a an optional order type intended to provide both market makers, institutional investors, an option to be able to, defend against some of the more toxic, costly impacts of speed-based tra- trading strategies that people are struggling with of the type that you, that you mentioned.
0: It's, it's important to note, though. So I, I, can, I completely agree with you, Dave. Like, what I would say is speed is not bad either, right? And too often in this market, people want to peg people into a corner as to anti-speed, pro-speed, that type of thing. What I would say is from a broker's standpoint, speed is different. It's relative to your competition in a way. You're you're definitely not competing with the fastest of the fastest. I mean that's a that's a that's a different strategy and it comes down to, like you said, it's intent. When you're representing a client on an agency basis, it's a very different intent to a proprietary trading firm trading on their own account. And that's not to say what they're doing is illegal or wrong. And things like D limit and things like solutions, I'm sure both of you try to provide in you know, Vlad, your pool or your algos and Canizo, your algos is is around protecting the intent of your clients. And as a byproduct of where speed has gotten, I think basically everybody is fast. And then speed comes down to the relative of the speed. And that's when you start to see these wars about microwave towers and single digit nanoseconds and like HPR that you brought up is uh, that's high on port research, right? So it's that low latency pre-trade risk, like it's amazing. I was talking to someone recently and they were telling me that that software does the risk checks in something like 400 nanoseconds, which those of you listening again, you always, uh, God bless you if you're not in the industry, that's 400 billionths of a second. That, that's the level that this thing is being measured at. So speed's important, speed's relative, but it's all important to, you know, it speeds the beauties in the eye of the beholder. So it's, it's an interesting topic because I think too many times people will torch speed as speed being bad it can be both good and bad basically
1: yeah and if hpr was on they'd probably jump in and say it's actually a little quicker but but yeah I mean, look i mean we uh we we've got diverse clients and so and that's Dave. that's really nice of you to say it and and we appreciate the opportunity to try to to earn that that business, you know, it's interesting when we think of the ecosystem, it's like you've got kind of different types of flow. And, and I know, you know, both Dave and I have talked about like retail flow, for example, and, you know, the quest for institutional clients to access that type of order flow, among others. And how, you know, we can leverage things like UBS ATS to segment order flow. It's to your point, you need to manufacture differently on exchange and, and ATS for, for different reasons. But, yeah, it is it is an interesting for us to think about and, and obviously as part of that the toolkit it could be the ATS it could be HPR it could be Dpeg which we use we use heavily among other um, order types so so there's certainly different use cases and yeah when we've got diverse clients we get to interact with and better understand that that broader ecosystem which I think makes us makes us better uh, overall
2: well we'll certainly uh, look forward to a substantial increase in your volume of Dpeg order flow after this <laughs> You guys will never never join yeah. this podcast again. Yeah. They didn't see the small print,
0: John. They didn't <laughs> see the small print.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, but I am interested in getting both of your takes, given those issues, um, David, that you just outlined. The recent trading environment, increased volatility, and the impact on institutional trading costs and just kind of like navigating the, Navigating all the stuff that you have to navigate anyway, but particularly in, in an environment where prices are whipsawing back and forth so quickly. If you could offer any perspectives on kind of what it's been like to deal with that. Yeah,
3: I, I, I don't think clients can truly appreciate what we experienced over the past couple of months. And I think it's been a bit of an educational process with them walking through some of the numbers and data that we provide to them. As you've probably seen from every broker that's published any type of data over the past couple of months and we all experienced the same observation of seeing spreads balloon by three four or five x and when taking into account the NBBO liquidity and the depth of book you know if you normalize those spreads it, it, it's even wider and we certainly saw an increase in you know decrease I should say in performance trading costs did go up but it's all relative to how stocks were behaving and Luckily, our performance remained somewhat consistent relative to those observed differences in the market. Things are starting to normalize a little bit, but we're still not back to pre-crisis norms. I don't think clients, again, appreciated what occurred because, you know, when you're used to seeing VWAP slippage at a certain number, or you're able to execute your orders at a certain time frame, and now all of a sudden you can't, people didn't quite understand what was going on with the market. They were just trying to trade stopped, But now that things have calmed down a little bit, they're more open to having those discussions and education regarding
1: it. All. Yeah, it's interesting. Like client workflow definitely shifted. You know, I mean, I would, you know, Dave's comments of trading costs going up several orders of magnitude are, are totally fair. We had seen that in the data. And, you know, just for example, we've got this for years, we would put out this, this quarterly global cost index report that a number of our clients appreciated. And we went from putting it out on a quarterly basis to, at one point, I believe we were putting it out daily because we had so many clients saying, what's the cost of trading? What are the impact models? And there was the amount of – maybe a positive that for a lot of the the traders, I think they were being pulled into risk management discussions and discussions around – Order sizing more than ever, as maybe a positive to just the increasing value uh, that uh, a trader can provide, particularly in in such a market, as a as a potential positive to all this, and and in terms of the, just the the environment and all, it just fortunately broadly speaking the most markets stayed open i mean there was some exceptions in asia and most markets or at least here you know didn't suddenly put in major changes around short sale restrictions which did go in in some markets in europe and for some of our clients became quite painful when some of those restrictions got put in and took some of them by surprise so fortunately you know to the credit of for example since we're all here in, in the us you know the credit of somebody like the sec they they uh, they didn't shut down the markets they didn't put in more short sale restrictions and those are big positives that also helped alleviate some issues or, or ensure that issues didn't occur that happened in some other markets
0: yeah no we, we definitely agree
3: along that along that topic the biggest pain point we saw was there was just so much uncertainty around if my client if my order would actually get executed you know upon the reopen or upon the original auctions you know as you know once the floor closed and the dmms had a slightly different Capacity, as well as the NYSE opening, certain stocks orders weren't executing the same way, and people, you know, were adapting to those those issues that they hadn't seen, quite frankly, for many, many years. I can't even recall the last time we had that type of an issue. That was certainly one of the more uh, frustrating parts of what was going on, you know, outside of trade costs and liquidity.
2: Well, th- that um, it is actually an interesting question. Is sort of what was the the Im- impact of all of this recent volatility on opening and closing auctions, did it change the way that you routed to venues or in particular used, sent orders in open or closing auctions? I know there was an st- interesting study that went out suggesting that actually the price in the closing auction was more reliable or that the process was better when the floor traders weren't on the floor. When, when they were, which the New York Stock Exchange obviously reacted negatively to. Any thoughts around any of that? I,
3: I, I certainly do. I, I personally observed, because of the uncertainty around the close and the lack of flexibility to get in and out and the, and via the de-quotes, we also had experiences, like I said, where some people were, were not getting filled on regular auction prints due to their timing or because the floor closed the stock versus the DMM closing the stock. So those experiences led customers to trading earlier. They made decisions about the close earlier. In a lot of cases, they would finish their orders a little earlier. And I think that was probably ultimately the reason you saw better performance into the close because people were not trading as aggressively into the close. At Raymond James, we actually added functionality throughout the crisis. You know, things around offering imbalance order types, imbalance only order types. So that clients can navigate the close if they so choose but we just saw a lot of clients shift their trajectories and how they traded a little earlier in the day so they can guarantee completion versus taking the chance into the close
0: i'd be interested to see what Vlad has to say on this and we're in no way trying to knock a competitor and maybe it's unfair to compare pre-floor closing post-floor closing when it was done in such a volatile market but just curious what you think
1: okay, look. No D orders by definition means folks lost flexibility right a lot of our clients got used to being able to have the option of submitting just before the close. Of not having their orders impact the imbalance feed until much later on, so all of a sudden that flexibility is gone and all of a sudden the the imbalance was much sharper. Because what was showing up arguably at, let's just say, through 350, 355 and on, suddenly it's showing up all at once on ICY, right? So it was like a consolidation of what was happening in more than one interval all at once. So it was clearly bigger imbalances going out all of a sudden. You know, so that, that was challenging for some folks. People adjusted. You know, we, we certainly saw some folks leverage the fact that NiCE started being able to push out information a bit earlier. And you didn't have to go through the floor broker, get information on the floor for a little bit. For the NICE imbalances. So that helped some clients. But yeah, I mean, overall, you know, I, I look a positive maybe for not having deorders. And I, I'd say I'm kind of quoting a number of clients who said this to me, which is there's an argument to say the access to liquidity got democratized.
0: Yeah, exactly. I, I was just going to say, because there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are not in the market. Would you, would you give a quick or, or whomever wants to give a quick explanation of what a de? So the New
1: York Stock Exchange has an order type that is exclusively offered by their floor brokers, so folks that are, that are physically on the New York Stock Exchange floor. Among other benefits is that the order type has, can be submitted, modified, canceled later in post the, uh, the cutoff that folks might otherwise be used to. And so from a flexibility standpoint and from a potential to minimize information leakage, there's a lot of benefits to that. But it does technically mean that someone's got to be on the floor. So when the floor temporarily closed, it wasn't offered.
2: And, and just to be clear, not, not to be c- critical of competitors. to the contrary, I think New York Stock Exchange, like everybody else, has been subject to very significant stresses during this um, process. And they have worked overtime like everybody else to try to make things run as smoothly as they can under the circumstances. So I wouldn't suggest that they're not doing everything they can to try to keep the trains running on time.
0: But it is an interesting point that it does democratize the close more when people don't have perceived advantages over having floor broker relationships. So that's that's an interesting side to it. You know, obviously, nazi have said that the floor will reopen, and I'm sure it'll go back to um, you know de quotes will exist again. but I uh, just just curious your guys' thoughts. So what we do every one of these podcasts is we we have a, a question we ask, so, you probably have heard it before. But oh, well, we're curious. doing that already.
2: We haven't even gotten into the SIPs. We haven't talked about oh, SIP reform or, you know, God. the Nasdaq lawsuit we were, we, or any of that,
0: right? How far do you want to go? We're It's 35 okay, minutes, John. All
2: right. Well, never we we'll okay, forget. Sorry. Sorry. We don't forget about Mello. It's- Sorry, Mitch. Yeah, and Mello, too. We didn't even talk about Mello.
0: F- hey, We might have to have these guys back again. Like, we can't do an hour-long <laughs> podcast. I don't know what to tell you. We can edit out other then if you want. What do you want to about? John, John, John Ramsey wants to selfishly talk about. The no, no, no! Knows. I don't
2: want to like hog the whole thing. Uh, no, oh. no,
0: no, no, no! John, you have the mic. Literally, go.
2: <laughs> well, now I feel now I feel awkward. We we um, we do this all the no, uh, time. so SEC has continued to. Uh, Vlad mentioned market data reform, a topic that we and uh, others in the industry bonded over uh, over time. The SEC has been making steady efforts at trying to reform the landscape there, including with recent change to the SIP plans, which NASDAQ promptly sued to overturn and uh, additional SIP reform. Either of you want to offer any thoughts about kind of like where that's going? Is it going in the right direction? Is it enough? Would you do something different?
0: Before you do, I just wanted to say that was a phenomenal question, John Ramsey. Well done.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ronan. Have you guys done this before? No. <laughs> no, no. Once or twice. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, Sorry.
1: Well, look, we, um, I, we, we've been feeling that there's uh, a need for more positive change for some time in the market data front. That's why you know, we spend a lot of time working with, with you folks on the market data front. We spend a lot of time with organizations like SIFMA, it's why, partly why at least we helped create Memex, one of the founding firms, among other things. And by the way, we're, you know, we're talking about U.S. equities right now, but we're, a lot of the challenges are not unique to U.S. equities. They're actually, they go on in options, they go on in Europe, they go on in parts of Asia. It's, you know, so, there's, so I guess there's a lot of things that hopefully we can get right for U.S. equities and apply elsewhere. And I'd say internally, we're spending more time than ever collaborating on a lot of these areas. You know, fortunately, there's a really, it feels like there's a good momentum in terms of greater transparency, greater governance, greater industry participation. So those feel, a lot of these things feel like they are going in the right direction. It, you know, of course it never feels like it's going fast enough. And so it's on, you know, all of us to keep pushing, but I'm, you know, fortunately we could see the common letters for some of our clients and makes us, gives us good indication that we're, we're clearly well aligned with our clients, which you know, at the end of the day, we're all we're in the client business, and so being able to push for positive change and innovation through a couple of our areas and being aligned with our clients does give us good vindication that we're going the right path.
3: Makes sense. I would echo those statements. I'm extremely happy that you are getting transparency. I know you guys like that word. Bang 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 bang
0: bang 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 bang. He wins a pair of eyes. He gets a socks. Someone's listened to this podcast before. Someone's
3: <laughs> Glad we'll send you a pair
0: too. <laughs> yeah.
3: But a level of transparency and discussion <laughs> that we've <laughs> never <laughs> had. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right, enough, <laughs> enough. We have to edit that out. That we were never afforded before, which is nice to see. I just hope that whatever they end up settling on or finalizing is somewhat simpler than other past rulings and decisions have been from a person in my seat, you know, I know previous guests of yours and other people have talked about, you know, as you talk about changes to the SIP and potentially to Reg NMS, there's, there's a whole waterfall of implications downstream when it comes to folks that sit in my seat with you know, how we execute orders, how we set the MBBO or the PBBO, how do we benchmark client orders, how do we measure performance? So whatever comes forth at the end of this, I just hope it's as, as simple as they could possibly make it so that we, as an industry, don't have to juggle a hundred different moving parts to, and, have, and allow every participant to have their own definition of you know, what is the right price and what is the MBBO, what is, what is the um, information we're using to trade on, and hopefully we can just streamline it um, across the whole industry.
2: All right. Sorry for that diversion. Now we, you can go back to your question, Ronan.
3: Okay,
0: everyone. What's yeah. your favorite Wall Street movie? And I have a new question afterwards.
3: Ooh. Well, you. Ooh. M- mine is already out of the bag because you looked at my LinkedIn profile, which has been the same for the past ten years or whatever is on there. So Wall Street, legacy Wall Street. But I would throw out Boiler Room as my modern favorite, not because of the plot or the story itself, but it's the one movie that has the most one-liners that people often quote, in our, at least in the industry, um, industry friends I have, we often talk about, you know, Ben Affleck's, you know, a sale is made on every call, comment, and other things like that. So they have a lot of one-liners I truly
1: like. What about you, Vlad? So good choices, Dave, throughout. I'll throw out just to switch up, maybe I'm gonna say It's a Wonderful Life.
3: It's a
2: Wonderful Life. Now, isn't that a curveball? (laughs) That's a very interesting, (laughs) yeah. Because the guy was a banker?
1: Was he a banker? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a good, it's a story of what can happen in the markets and how how things can change so quickly. And it's one of humility. And, you know, on the one hand, all of us spend so much time on data and technology, and that's more important than ever. On the other, it's ultimately still the people business.
2: And it's a nice, wholesome story about people pulling together under hard conditions and that's a very, uh, that's a very hard one. Well, Glad sentiment. was prepped
0: there. That was, that was too good. Oh my yeah, God. All right. Well, my, <laughs> can I, <change> my answer? <laughs> I was going to say wonderful life too. Yeah. Yeah. Miracle right. on 34th street.
3: Okay. Boiler well, yeah. room is
0: similar to wonderful
3: life,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And my, my next new question is I've taken to on a weekly basis making a new summer drink. And right now I'm on fruit punches. What's your favorite summer drink and it can't just be Corona. Alcohol
2: drink, that is. Right now, you're on fruit punch. Was that directed at me? Huh? Rum punch. <laughs> okay, all right. Hey, yeah. take my wife,
0: please! <laughs> all right, sorry, go I ahead. don't even know what you mean, John. Um, <laughs> Rum punch. You guys have a favorite summer drink?
3: For anyone who knows me, I'm not a big drinker, that's for certain, and there's plenty of stories about that, but I typically keep it simple with beer, wine, and vodka. However, my, my wife being home, um, she's been experimenting with different drinks, I've never been a big mojito guy. Uh, she's been, you know, making some mojitos uh, when I come home from work. So that's kind of been my new. Very refreshing. The minty flavor. I like. They're mojitos. very
2: great. And really good with fresh mint, too. If you get like one of those little mint plants at the. Uh, at the Yeah, Super we grow them in the garden. So.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yes. Nice. Nice. Glad. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for this one Yeah, So I, so I'm not a big beer guy, but I, there's this beer Talia that in full disclosure, I had invested in personally. And it was because partly because the founders really impressed me. And it was these, just two people who, women who worked together at a prior beer companies, and one of them had served and they had just this amazing story and they totally wowed me. And then, and I thought the beer was awesome. So I wound up investing in the company and I quite, and they actually have a beer that's like made for the summer that i quite like so that's
0: what's it called Tal- talia
1: t-a-l-e-a
0: t-a-l-e-a and what's their beer is it a lager or an ipa
3: what kind of summer drink is it
1: summer ale they, they've got some ipas yeah yeah, yeah. nice
3: i i, I invest in a, in a beer as well it's the iex beer by yeah
2: oh,
0: there
3: you go yeah <laughs> well done
2: yeah. you've totally redeemed yourself from the wonderful totally. you definitely Snapped get top billing on the podcast dude. <laughs> okay yeah
0: all right. Well, All right. listen, guys. I, I think
1: my IX beer is in the speed bump. I don't yeah. think I received any. Oh, this,
0: this, the speed bump is my uh, stomach <laughs> right now. Ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, guys, you, you guys have been great guests. Uh, we would have you back on because John Ramsey wants to talk about 10 other market structure <laughs> topics to bore the shit out of everybody. But no, we, we, we appreciate it. Maybe next time we'll, we'll do it in the IX office in our little IEX sweat booth with some liquidity beer.
2: yeah, and we'll give you a pair of socks too. So, you know, you got that. Jeez, why are you so angry Okay, (laughs) all right.
0: Socks are happy. They're ding,
2: Mm -hmm. ding, 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 Mm ding. You win socks, not
0: your socks. Transparency. (laughs) Ding, 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 See, that's all I have to say. (laughs) All right, well, cheers, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, listeners, for another episode of Boxes and Lines. God bless John Ramsey.
2: God bless you all.
1: and
3: opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group, Inc., and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc., all rights reserved.